Mr. Speaker, I am fully aware of my responsibilities as a member of this parliament and the privileges bestowed upon me, which I endeavor at all times to treat with respect. I am also aware of my responsibilities to every man, woman, and child living within this commonwealth, as I believe should be every member of this parliament, no matter to which political philosophy he owes allegiance. It is with this in mind that I address the House on the matter of the FOCO Club, situated on the third floor of the Trades Hall, Brisbane, the nerve centre of the Australian Labour Party in Queensland. We used to say to people, you know, the police and the Conservative government would love an opportunity to close FOCO down, so let's make sure we don't give them that opportunity. And that was very openly, you know, put in our newsletters and in any communication we had with members. And people actually respected that. And now I said, it's a smear. It's a smear by the government and the police to destroy us with lies and distortions. We acknowledge the Yagara, Jagara and Turrbal people whose beautiful country this podcast was produced on. We pay respect to Elders past and present as the traditional custodians of this land whose shores, art and knowledge will always inform our creativity, storytelling and search for truth and unity while standing on the unceded lands of this country. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Dive into the history books, across the sticky floors, past the stacked glasses, gum and tangled cables. Away from the history books, hear true stories from some of the most prolific venues in Australian history, told by the people that lived, breathed and built their scene. The scene. On the 12th of September 1968, Don Cameron addressed the State Parliament Chamber in Brisbane. It was formed on the 3rd March 1968 With the Foco Club growing in popularity and a wider range of people making their way up the fabled stairs of the Trades Hall building, the policy of silence seemed to be becoming a bit too loud. I am aware also that a candidate for the Australian Labour Party at the next state election is also going to face the situation as actively working in an attempt to save young people from being exposed to this activity. Plus, I've been careful with actual programs. I am not prepared to divulge my sources of information here, or will gladly do so for the appropriate authorities to get requested. The illegal and prohibited drugs, marijuana, and negative are for the arsenal. I do not know whether things have gone past the stage, but I do know that dozens of business young people have been caught by the standard of iniquity. Even as the last continue, the number of growing hundreds and possibly thousands. It is also a concept for prostitution, Mr. Speaker, and the individuals working there will arrange for a young woman to accompany one for a whole night in a matter of seconds. The standard price seems to be I truly believe that those tremendous number of people are associated with the who just do not realise what is going on. My advice to 
After the comments from Don Cameron in Parliament, the trajectory for FOCO changed. This is this is a federal parliament. So it would have been probably Thursday night late and he did this. And on that Sunday, FOCO was bringing up uh, the wild cherries from Melbourne for the second time. And, you know, at no small expense. And it, it was a huge story in the Brisbane papers, particularly the Sunday Sun, as it then was, the Murdoch rag. And it meant that a lot of people were f- frightened that there would be a police raid, even though there wasn't. And a lot of good people were frightened that, or that, you know, that parents would not, would f- flatly refuse to let their, their children go to it. Because probably by now they've admitted where they're going because it was actually, it seemed to be running pretty well. And while it was a bit out there, it was still acceptable. And then suddenly it wasn't. I went up there and a union official who I knew and liked, we'd been at that time festied uh, over, over the newspapers and radio and television about FOCO, Australia's most evil and repugnant night spot. It's laughable when you think about it, absolutely laughable. But this very experienced trade union leader, I think of the miscellaneous workers' union, he buttonholed me as I was coming out of trades hall, whatever business I was doing there at that time, and he said with almost with quivering lips, he said, Alan, tell me, are there drugs at FOCO? And I, I, I said, yes, there are. As a matter of fact, I keep them in a 44-gallon drum by the door and I hand them out as people come in. I said, whatever his name is, I've forgotten it now, I said, it's a smear. It's a smear by the government and the police to destroy us with lies and distortions. And he saw the he saw the wisdom of what I said, and I don't think he ever said that again. But uh, you know, there was a generation gap that had to be filled. And I might add, if there was a failure in Foco, we never filled it. And of course, they just assumed, I think, that there was alcohol at Foco. Well, there wasn't. I mean, to have had alcohol there it would have liquor license. The huge, the huge cost. They knew how to get a license at the drop of a hat, a you know, a temporary license and so on. So it wasn't like there weren't blokes picking, trying to pick fights or any of that sort of crap that you got when you went to a lot of music venues. Uh, it was it was a positive atmosphere. Foco responded in their newsletter the following week. In the light of recent allegations in the Federal House of Parliament, we feel that some comment is due at this stage for the reassurance of parents and members. The Foco executive feels that Mr Cameron's allegations stem from a political basis. Undoubtedly, the effect Foco is having on the cultural and most importantly, the political life of its member is causing some consternation amongst Liberal Party and big business circles. It is here that the motives of Mr Cameron's attack lie. FOCO executive does not deny in any way that the club has a political alignment. We represent a radical approach to politics and culture as well. Basically, we believe that our society is suffering from a sickness in its approach to entertainment and its politics. We hold Mr Cameron's attack as an example of this same thing. FOCO feels that disallowing the right of an individual to think and act on political lives of his choosing and using cheap slander 
and mass frenzy tactics to prevent this action are simply indicative of our times. Nor do we deny that the problems of drugs affect us. A crowd of 500 teenagers can be, and you can't help having bad apples. We suggest that the Young Democratic functions at Ashgrove and the YMCA functions in Edwards Street both face the same problem. We point to this also as a sickness of our society. We urge members to disregard Mr Cameron's remarks as a general attack on the labour and trade union movement as a whole and to look on the attack as using FOCO as a pawn in the federal political games. That really had a huge impact on, uh, you know, parents were very scared about their children coming, etc. It was a total lie, complete lie. It was just a great relaxing time you know, for everyone to enjoy. And, and, but you know, we were pretty strong about drugs. So weren't, you know, they kept an eye out constantly on all of that. So there was none of that, 97% none of that. You know what I mean? You can never be absolutely certain, but it certainly was not evident. And there was certainly no dealing going on, that, that was for certain, you know. But it doesn't matter. The issue seemed to lay in the exterior actions of the FOCO club team with Cameron's address bringing into disrepute the venue known as The Cellar, which was another side venue for Fogo, hosting a workshop for performers and creatives to rehearse. Alongside these facilities, the building was a meeting space for the SDA, YSL and other groups involved with Foco Club directly or indirectly. Before that was demolished, they were empty. There were buildings there that were empty for quite some time. Some were semi-derelict semi already and unoccupied. But um, just near the Herschel Street overpass, you know, on the Roma Street station side of Herschel Street overpass, there are a number of buildings there that actually had a cellar level and a street level. And um, yeah, that was the old cellar. Yeah, it was basically open slather. And um, some pretty strange people didn't come in at times. But it was basically a very accepting spot, very accepting place. Wendy and Sue Otway, who were two of the pe women who who lived there, were known to do things like getting out pillows and laying in the gutter to sunbake just to offend people. The printing room of the venue was a major focus for Cameron with the potential earnings of any aspect of the FOCO club accused to be aligned with the Labor Party. So a lot of the, um, the pamphlets were produced that were distributed by the Society for Democratic Action and various people involved with the, the right to march and anti-war activities were printed there. Look, it, it wasn't a money-making concern. It cost a lot of money to bring the bands in and pay all the overheads. Uh, I don't think it made money at all. Not that I was involved with the money side of it, but um, I, there would be no money going to the Labor Party at all, or to the Communist Party for that matter. Wing of the Labor movement was probably pretty opposed to it right from day one. And if we didn't have champions in the Labor movement like Alex MacDonald and Hugh Hamilton, you know, it probably would have lasted a couple of months. Instead, it went on for, what was it, about 18 months? However, the divide in the FOCO Club cohort was there from the start. With the relationship between all parties involved in locking in the Trades Hall as the venue being one which was delicately brought together with the help of Alan Anderson. Long time the cellar and the FOCO coexisted, but the students and Labor in particular, who wasn't there for most of the time, they went overseas very early on, although he claims credit for everything that Foco did or represented. He backed out of it quite early on and um, went over. Foco 
had a life of its own. People, people like uh, Alan and Larry Zetlin and many, many others made sure it kept running for you know, almost a year and a half before it ran out of steam. And the in the middle of it all, Alex McDonald passed away. Intuitively, kind of felt that there, that 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 it wasn't really, it wasn't really a. Uh, some kind of utopia that I'd landed in, that, 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 that you know, people were the same everywhere and they all had issues and the anger. I didn't see the need uh, for the anger. I couldn't understand the anger. It's not that I couldn't see, I wasn't looking for need. I just couldn't understand it. Couldn't understand why, on the one hand, there was this sense of rebellion, this sense of wanting to make something better, but uh, people were getting into these really intense and angry arguments about, you know, right line, correct line, um, all of that sort of stuff. So there were a whole lot of factions. So there weren't cells, they were really factions. And uh, that, that, they, the thing that disturbed me most of all was that when there was a split of some kind, you know, between this group and that group, or two groups would form out of one group, or whatever. Uh, the bitterness and the vitriol that happened between those groups was almost worse than the anger they felt uh, 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 about the system. Divisions in the FOCO Club team came to an early boiling point with the May Day rally of 1969. And there, yeah, there were a number of clashes there. There was no debate about that. There was just tension, you know. That was just a concept that was brought up by the YSL that referred to themselves as pragmatists and to the others here as dreamers, you know. But they weren't dreamers, not at all. We were very, you know, we knew what we were doing, you know. Just when we set up the Civil Liberties Coordinating Committee and challenged the state laws on, uh, on holding demonstrations, you know, there's nothing dreaming about that. It was, it was hard-nosed saying this is the way we have to go and should be part of our struggle against the Vietnam War and conscription and so on, you know. With a divided team, slumping financials and a watchful eye from the powers that be, the death knock was coming for FOCO. Of course, it frightened the unions. Unions are very conservative, really. You know, they're, they're about industrial struggle. You know, but but the students are not about that. Right? So it was uh, they tend to be very, and they were very worried about Foco. You know, Foco was something totally different and and crazy and so on. So you know, a lot of unions were not happy at all about it. You know, um, they weren't ready for it. Let's put it that way. You know, it's the way it is. An old building full of old thinking people. You know. After only a year and a half, FOCO came to the end, closing officially in September of 1969. But some people want to keep it going, 
you know, some people who there was nothing else in their lives that been so important, you know, had to keep it going. And um, and I just said, you got to know when you you got to cut your losses. <laughs> this was an incredible experiment, but, but this is the end of it. But you know, it was a struggle. I mean, if you were interested in innovation in any of those areas of creativity, you know, the diet was pretty restricted until Foco came along. And I mean, I think Foco just kind of, you know, <laughs> burst it open. And like most explosions, it um, died down and became ashes. <laughs> While Lever was in and out of the picture during a large chunk of the Foco Club, his departure, along with other key members including Di Zetlin, Larry Zetlin and Mitch Thompson, was a significant blow. I decided that I couldn't do it any longer. Uh, I had to go back to the university and keep the pressure on there. And I and the young communists thought they could do it, but it, they didn't have the knowledge and the personality. They had the hours to put in, but they didn't... They didn't have the skills and they didn't even have the ability because they are workers themselves. You know, like we, our base was the University of Queensland. Most of these were middle class men and boys and who were coming in from all the stuff we're doing out at the university, you know. And they would have, uh, yeah, they just didn't have that knowledge. They had no doubt the courage to stand up to bosses on social industrial issues, but they just didn't have that range of contacts with people that could pull them in. To some extent, it took quite a heavy toll on some of the people who stayed around, just in the sense that that kind of, you know, factional warfare <laughs> can be deeply demoralising, you know, for people who, you know, who in a sense were committed to the broader goals, you know, but just saw the factionalism as kind of, you know, tearing it apart. It failed because we, we had the base, not that we were sabotaging it. Uh, we were all looking for recovery and, and rest, you know, and... Uh, and with, you know, as I said, with great respect for those who did put in the um, put in the work, you know, particularly the the guys who ran the unions who were prepared to take the risk to get sacked by, you know, their right wing Labor Party boys. A Hepper Hall in West End was home to a new vision of Foco, aiming to provide a smaller version with less chaos. But alas. The chaos found its way in, by force. We opened it up and we knew very well we were going to be raided. And in fact, we opened up with our resident band, The Coloured Balls. I went out in the street and I saw there was about 50 police drilling out, in the, out on the road. And I thought, well, those who warned us we would be raided the minute we left Trades Hall were right on the money. I rang up a sympathetic policeman at Woolongabba Police Station. There were rumblings in Brisbane then about police corruption and all that sort of thing, and this bloke was sympathetic. I don't, I, I'm not sure whether we actually he ever went to Foco, but I rang him up at the uh, Woolongabba Police Station and I said, I forget his name now, and I said, uh, What are all those coppers doing in, in, uh, in West End? Well, for Christ's sake, you, you must know, they're going to raise you, and it's going to be very, very soon. And anyway, 
I uh, went back inside. We, it was a depleted number because it was not like the trades hall. It's a depleted number there, but quite a few hundred people. I got up, grasped the microphone, and I said, Look, everyone, we're going to have a raid by the police very soon, and it's a matter of minutes away. If anybody, for whatever reason, wants to go, go now. And I stood there after after making that pronouncement. I was leaning against the wall and they burst in, grabbing people and dragging them out. It was certainly an example of, that Queensland had, had become, if it hadn't always been like this, a police state. And of course, later on, the Fitzgerald inquiry brought a lot of those things to the fore. But we got the we got the brunt of it and moving out of Trades Hall we had no option. We had to go. We I would have liked it to continue for as long as it was able to be, but that was just about well, that was just about at the end of it for me. Whether it was government pressure, internal pressure, union pressure, or just general, you know, Pressure. The influence of the Foco Club would change the face of Brisbane for years to come. Not specifically in the ventures born from members or attendees, but from the spirit Foco injected at a perfect time and place. A circuit breaker for Brisbaneites to dream big and do it. Foco offered a different dimension altogether. It gave depth to your experience. There's all these things happening and you could, you know, accidentally just go and listen to John Williams after being in a disco, for instance, and just be blown away by it, but never ever have come across that before. You know, it was just allowed, including all the discussions and theatre and so on. You could just move from one room to the other. And all of this added to what I call the depth of experience, giving a, a greater dimension to people's lives. I, mean, I know it's not many people's lives, a few thousand, but it was a start. It was something, it was something far more with greater meaning than, say, your normal disco, good time disco. There was an, a general rebellion against the constriction that uh, young people felt about the society around them. And uh, things like FOCO uh, gave some of those people an opportunity of uh, getting out of, of that into something else and something new. Having said all that, there were also political people who had, you know, deep concerns and great nous and great abilities. And they, they were the people, I think, who went on to really change a lot of things. And, and the other thing to remember is this, is that that kind of rebellious uh, sort of culture, if you like, that had developed gave a whole lot of different uh, people who had been marginalised, whether it was the Aborigines or women or uh, uh, gay people, uh, any of these, these, all of these groups found an avenue in which they could f uh, have a more free way of expressing what they believed uh, and, and how they wanted to live their lives. Okay. You can have Aboriginal people and white people and Arab people and Israeli people. Anyone could be there, you know. It was just open house and really free-thinking sort of situation. I was never allowed to go to FOCO when it first started. 
Um, but finally I sort of snuck out and went with my boyfriend of the time who took me into this dangerous place. And it was exciting. It was captivating. Lots and lots of people in small spaces being very friendly. This is Anne Richards, cultural history researcher, author of A Book of Doors and attendee of the FOCO Club. I knew just by going there, I was stepping right outside the boundaries of my family, just by walking through the door and my conservative background. It was just rebellious to even go there. But the people were intriguing. There's lots of music. The music you could just relate to is the sort of music that we weren't allowed to listen to at home, but which we always listened to when my father was out. You had to turn the TV or the music off as soon as he, you heard the car in the garage sort of thing. It was the people, the clothes, the, the poetry, uh, the difference. It was a different world. This is the thing, what, what, what was enticing. It was so completely different to the Catholic dances that I'd been allowed to go to. If you can understand, that was a bit of a contrast. I hated them, you know. They were just boring. The music was boring. This this was people in different clothes, different hairstyles, speaking their minds, making friends so easily. Just this one introducing you to that one, introducing you to somebody else. It was inclusive, immediately inclusive, which was really heartening. It made you feel comfortable, even though there was just an energy that built and built and built. It fed into the way people looked, the way they dressed, the way they connected with each other, into their language, street theatre, street happenings. Uh, and part of that was there was a lot of that originated through the universities. Like the early FOCO things have got photos of um, Jack Thompson there sort of doing. The students used to put on plays at the Avalon Theatre at St Lucia. And a lot of those people, a lot of that creative energy, and then they became the um, architect's reviews. That creative energy just generated it, it just spiralled out into all sorts of other areas. It's not just that, it spiralled out into, like from 1969 we were talking about the environment. In 1969 we are talking about overpopulation and what's going to happen and um, the barrier reef and all those things. We were talking about how to live alternatively and then by 70 it was how to educate alternatively. All those ideas that just became, I think it was a a global movement, but the the driving force, or to my mind, the absolute driving force that created, that absolutely challenged everybody and every family was, was conscription, because every 18-year-old who didn't have a right to vote was obliged to register for the draft. A lot of them were automatically sent to Vietnam and that was being graphically reported on the TV every night. So you grew up watching that and watching the um, civil rights marches, as I said. And 68, we had both Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy assassinated. Martin Luther King 20 minutes ago died. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, 
President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Which was the hope, the great hope of change with those two assassinations just was people were in dismay and we just got to just take action, everybody, you know, because you can't change it unless you make the change and start being the change yourself. I think that was a very strong point that everyone, or not everyone, because there are a lot of people who are still large conservatives and a lot of people outside the universities were untouched by it. But a lot of people were driven were drawn into that to that mindset and FOCO was a really forceful and colourful experiment and it's just sad that it didn't flourish because it was the trade unions took a gamble and there were people in the trade union movement who thought, oh my goodness, this is going too far and I think that article about the evil and repugnant evil hotspot in Brisbane turned a lot of the higher up trade union people uh, made them more wary of of the engagement of the younger people and the, also the, the explosive culture that was being created and generated around that. Bogo generated inspiration, that is, a lot of people who would move, including myself, who went on to become, I guess we'd call cultural and political activists for Triple Z, Popular Theatre Troupe, La Bamba, a whole range of uh, theatre and dance and so on. But also, I guess, in the more the more political side, people uh, people got inspiration uh, about new ideas, exposure to new artists that they wouldn't have otherwise seen, or speakers or literature. The other thing it created was confidence. What it demonstrated was that in Brisbane, in 1968. 69, you could run utterly groundbreaking, utterly radical, progressive activities and they would be successful, they would make money, they would be popular and then you could go on and do other things. So those two things put together, the inspiration and the confidence, then led to all of those other things happening. And I often, people when we joke about these things, we talk about the ghost of FOCO. I mean, the, it just kept, the ripples just kept going. The influence just kept going. Harpo was a major stepping stone in one of the most obvious paths from FOCO to today. Harpo. How about resisting? powerful organisations. Which was a sort of, I guess, a counterculture, sort of radical counterculture kind of group. Brought the do-it-yourself attitude of FOCO closer to the university campus, into Tawong, and spread across an old block of flats. There was a set of uh, units, or flats, really, uh, behind the uh, Tawong Library in this old Queensland weatherboard. This is Bomber Perrier. It was mainly started by um, Oma Peria, who was one of the young unionists involved with FOCO, and Graham Cathcart, sadly now deceased, and a number of other particular, Colin Beasley, Stuart Matchett, myself. And there were three different flats, and I lived in the middle one uh, with a sister of uh, someone who lived in the top one, and uh, Graham Cathcart, who was a, a very good friend of mine, lived in the bottom one, and Graham and I uh, sort of um, 
became a kind of focal point for Harpo and, and the kind of activities that we did. Harpo developed the FOCO spirit to fit more snugly in the mould of what initially attracted a large chunk of the original civil liberties movement. Attractions skewed toward the student lifestyle. We did everything. We produced two newspapers. We ran uh, concerts uh, that had, had a, a strong theatrical aspect to them at the, in the refectory of the University of Queensland. Uh, there was a whole foods uh, store, um, organic food store that, that, that was run by Harpo at a period of time. The most important thing that we did, it turned out, was the Harpo's Night Out which was unashamedly a, a rip-off of FOCO. It was inspired directly by FOCO. Um, we brought um, mainly Mackenzie Theory, a very kind of contemporary band from Melbourne, up, and they would, um, we would write a piece of theatre. It would be obviously a couple of local bands, and then Mackenzie Theory would, we would do the piece of theatre, and then Mackenzie Theory would come in the end of it, and start playing until and we now that's something we 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 observed at FOCO and versions of that it's things so things as as sort of small and practical and as enormous as having the confidence to do it I remember the first night when we sat down with Mackenzie Theory to to divide up the uh, we had an agreed formula for the money and we just had this these two big bags of money we went round to Graham and Bomber's house and we tipped it all on the floor and we counted it in front of them and they just went, oh my God, Melbourne promoters, you just, you know, even the good ones are scamming and so on and it takes you ages to get your money and all those sorts of things. <laughs> they just couldn't believe it. And they said, we're going to tell everybody that <laughs> you just dumped all the money on the floor and counted it in front of us because we could. We just did that sort of stuff. 50 years after the closure of the original FOCO club, in the progressive streets of West End, Brian Laver found himself involved in a reimagining of the spirit of FOCO with FOCO Nuevo. Lachlan Hurst and Sue Monk, two musicians who made their way to Brisbane in the middle of the 70s, found themselves surrounded by a creative group with a spark for community. So when we set up Foco Nuevo, it was in a community centre in West End, uh, a place called Ahimsa House. And the key people involved in Ahimsa House had also been involved in the setting up of Foco, the original Foco. The way we set it up was very much influenced by what we had seen in Latin America, and particularly in Cuba, where there is so much music going on and just about every block there's, there's regular music events yeah. happening. And how did that happen? And it was really clear what kind of infrastructure and what kind of support there was for that. And it was just so lacking in Australia was um, and so we wanted to we wanted what we learned from that we sort of wanted to see yeah. if we could do something so similar. The, the sorts of things that we saw were artist controlled spaces where an artist was given a venue uh, and they could invite whoever guests they guest musicians they, they liked and uh, they were there was uh, provision for sound and and um, and someone to be on the door and stuff like that so the artists themselves actually had a high level of autonomy and control over the performance practices in the venues 
Artist-first venues such as FOCO have always existed in the fringes of the sprawling city, with rents rising and the bell curve of scene participation that comes and goes as the years pass. But FOCO Nuevo has continued a long-lasting tradition of utilising the home for building a community, converting their backyard into a fully realised space for music, ensuring low costs and easy access for the local community. I think it's the intent of connecting outside the mainstream, the intent of having a, a music culture that somehow ties into sort of a, a, a general left-wing framework. And I think that's the connection, the intent uh, of the original one, even though the circumstances were quite different, remains the same. When COVID hit, everything closed down. We, you know, nobody could get rent a room anymore. So we started doing things in our backyard and we've been doing that ever since. So Foco and River now is actually in our backyard and we, we have a um, professional sound guy to do the sound. It's actually a better venue than we've, we've been yeah. in for a long while because the sound's really good and we've managed to get a lot of people in the street on side with it so they come along and, and we've just somehow kept going. The Foco Club was something that cannot ever be replicated, a unique blend of passion, vision and cooperation that can at times seem so far out of grasp in the modern world. Yet, we have seen so many mutations of the blend of passion, vision and cooperation still popping up around the country. It taught me that anything is possible. I mean, I don't think any of us had the expectation that it would be as successful as it was. So it taught me that, you know, you should never hold back from trying creative ideas. I personally felt very sad about the fact that I think one of the casualties of its demise was what was a very interesting and growing connection between kind of the trade union movement or at least the progressive side of the trade union movement and the student radicals. I mean that could have been, you know, an incredibly productive kind of relationship. I mean, the sorts of initiatives that subsequently came up in New South Wales, for example, around, you know, the building workers putting on green bands and, you know, there, there, was, there was a space there, you know, that if that cooperation had been able to continue, probably had enormous potential that I think, you know, in the end wasn't fully realised in Brisbane and not as strongly as it was, say, in Sydney with, you know, some of those things like the green bands and the trade union movement getting involved in conservation and so on. It was a sense of exploration, excitement, and then the, and these dark kind of corridors going around this old building um, and discover, trying to find where the, the various activities were. The fire lit by FOCO and Artist First venues of the past has kept burning and continues to run in the background, eternally keeping the magnet of Brisbane set to true north. I don't see it necessarily as a kind of linear thing. I see it more like, you know, kind of bubbles coming out of the same water, you know, like things came up out of all of this. And, and, and FOCO itself was probably a manifestation of the times anyway, because, you know, the world was rebelling. Young people all around the world were rebelling. And I think it did change the music scene in Brisbane kind of permanently because, I mean, up until then, Brisbane had been seen as 
and was, you know, a kind of provincial town that wasn't up with the latest in music. And a lot of the music venues were actually still controlled by people from the kind of Fitzgerald era. And I think we did bring probably the most innovative kind of rock music that was around in Australia, you know, up to Brisbane. And they liked it. They enjoyed it. They wanted to come back. <laughs> you know, so I think that probably did have an influence in changing the music scene in, in Brisbane. I think that idea is still is still something that's actually really important. You know, I think I think there really needs to be a space for music and the arts, you know, to be a vehicle for political expression. There's no room for that in Queensland at the time. And so to some extent I think, you know, FOCO was really important in making that kind of statement. Politics is something that is not just an empty speech, you know, it's it's actually something that engages people at that kind of aesthetic and emotional level. You know, and there's a place for it. But It'll find different expressions at different times. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Scene. This podcast was produced by Humid Snake Productions and 4ZZZ Radio in Brisbane. Executive producer was Nick Huntington with producers Russell Thompson and Lucy McAfee. Editing by Nick Huntington, Vladimir Rudikov and Vin Sutherland. Research and production assistant provided by Levi Rial and Neil McLeod. We would love to stay in touch and hear from you. Drop us a line on Instagram and Facebook at Building the Scene. If you want to support the show, give us a rating on your podcast app, spread the word to your mates in person and online, or just keep on listening. Special thanks to the Australian Cultural Library, State Library of Queensland, and the many voices featured throughout this episode. This podcast would not be possible without the help of the Brisbane City Council Creative Spark Program. We're eternally grateful for the support. Catch ya! Building the scene.